everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. Cole and I are doing another accredited episode. Yes. Our non-accredited episodes have been unfortunately taking a backseat due to <laughs> prior obligations yes. and different things like that. They'll, they'll be coming back at you, don't worry. It turns out our children were born around yeah. the same time of the year, so we right. happen to have birthdays. 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 Which, I know. Why are we celebrating one-year-old's birthday? Because my wife said we have to. I, you know, I was thinking about that, that um, I have no memories of anything, maybe at the earliest, three years old. And we're doing all these things, sub three years old, that they'll have no idea about. Right. Nothing. And it's for us. It's for us, even though we don't, uh, half of us don't want to <laughs> no. participate. But uh, it's okay. You know, it's fine. It's just one of those things. I lo- I, in in my, 10 years of, my 10 years of marriage, I've realized just... Shut up, and sometimes you just don't argue. Probably his biggest birthday bashes will be his first and second birthdays that he does not remember. Yeah. Although we did cater Moe's. That pretty was pretty good. cool. That's because we did that for the students at one time. I was yeah. like, I know exactly what we <laughs> If I'm in charge of food, I know what we're yeah. doing. That's pretty solid. Yeah, so that's good. So that's a nice, easy segue to, one, tell you that we will be doing other episodes again, more episodes <laughs> again. Uh, and that's what I started to say. And then, two, um, we're talking about hypothyroidism tonight. Which has nothing to do with what we were just talking about, but that no. is our topic, and it's one that we have not done uh, that counts for credit, and um, we actually have a pretty good uh, review article, I guess we'll call it, came out too, so um, I, I'm actually, good timing, because I kind of want to talk about this anyway. Yeah, yeah no, we haven't, we haven't talked about thyroid in years and years. Has it been a while? Years and years, I think. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. years, yeah. That many years? That many. That's yeah. a lot. Um yeah, but I think that uh, yeah, the article you mentioned has some adds some nuance to maybe what you would think as simple um, treatment. So. Yeah, and you know us, we're all about nuance. <laughs> we're all about. It. So uh, yeah, um, when we see a credit episode, I've, I think by now most of you have the the idea of how we do these, but our partners at freece.com have graciously continued that partnership. And so for those of you who are freece.com members and have unlimited uh, access to all of their content, automatically get all of our almost 50 episodes that we have available on their website. And during this episode, we will give you a super secret password that you will then remember and write in, uh, put into the uh, freece.com's platform that'll give you access to our post activity test. And you'll crush the test, get your one hour of continuing education credit for pharmacists and nurses. So if you're not a member, definitely check out their their website. And as always, thanks to them to continue to partner with us. 50 episodes? Something like that. That's solid. The last time I looked, it was 42, and I feel like that was a while ago, so I'm going to round up to 50. Yeah. That's how I well. did that. That's very solid. So TSH and thyroid issues. Yes. Yes. Um, Hypothyroidism. What are we going to start with, Cole? Yeah, I guess we'll start a little bit with um, just a a brief bit of uh, pathophysiology, and we'll start with the negative feedback loop that is the um, homeostasis of trying to keep your um, uh, active thyroid um, hormone uh, in a normal range. Uh, generally speaking, um, it's going to start with the hypothalamus that's going to release thyrotropin-releasing hormone that's going to prompt the pituitary gland to release TSH, and that prompts the thyroid gland to release um, a T4 and some T3, um, and then T4 is converted to its active form, T3. In the peripheral tissues, I think in the brain some too, um, if the um, as those levels uh, decrease in the blood, it's going to send um, a response to the pituitary gland that's going to prompt more release of thyroid stimulating hormone, 
and then more release of T4 and T3, it will also send um, uh, a, a uh, um, signal to the hypothalamus to release more thyrotropin releasing hormone, which will also prompt that cascade. That's how it goes round and round. And that's kind of going to set the stage um, to say why we monitor TSH and why that's so important to, uh, to recognizing if somebody has hypothyroidism. Mm-hmm. As far as causes of hypothyroidism, uh, there can be either primary causes or secondary causes. So the most common primary cause would be uh, Hashimoto's disease, um, which is you know, an autoimmune um, injury to the, the thyroid itself that, you know, um, ends up affecting uh, the amount of thyroid you know hormone that's being produced. And um, it's something that is... Pr- definitely uh, disproportionately affects females, but it can happen in males as well. Um, and I feel like at least, you know, statistically in the U.S., that's the, the most common cause of, of secondary um, or, or primary cause, rather, of, of the hypothyroidism. It, it can also be, uh, in, from a worldwide standpoint, can be iodine deficiency. Um, iodine is very much involved uh, in the synthesis of thyroid hormones, and its uh, deficiency in that can obviously lead to um, complications of your, your thyroid system. And the you know, the patients also can have um, some issue where they've had hyperthyroidism in the past, had that situation rectified, and, you know, maybe they had, like, ablative therapy, you know, with radioiodine, and now, you know, they're hypothyroid, um, they're hypo, what's the word for that, hypothyroidic? I, I want to say hypothyroidotic, but I don't think that's it. Yeah, I feel like both of those are super wrong. I guess, what is that, uh, is that a verb, is that we're trying to make it into? Uh, maybe it can't be one. I don't know, we're, I feel like I'm getting dumber by the second, though, trying maybe to think of it. Maybe it's just they're hypothyroid. Yeah, 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 that's probably actually, the, the, it is hypothyroid, because they would be euthyroid if they were normal. Mm-hmm, yeah. yeah, okay, so we're idiots, excuse <laughs> us. Um, and so, uh the the I don't even know where I was going with that. Now that I've gotten off that, so yes, that if they were treated for hyperthyroidism and now their thyroid is not working properly as a result or removed completely, then they uh, will will be hypothyroid then going forward. Secondary causes uh, pituitary insufficiency, uh, where there's a failure to produce adequate. TSH secretion, which we'll talk about, and uh, or like Cole kind of mentioned that already, that negative feedback system, but the DHS um, secretion is, is down, but it's not, um, it's, the labs will look a little different if it's a secondary cause, especially from a pituitary standpoint. We'll talk about that. And also uh, drug-induced. So the one that I always think of that can cause hyper and hypothyroidism is amiodarone, and uh, that's a, that's a, a culprit uh, that should be kind of red flags should go up if they're having issues controlling their thyroid levels and they're on amio um, lithium is another big one that can affect thyroid levels uh, but those obviously drug induced would be secondary as well so um, yeah. all of that said the uh, various causes but the treatment is pretty much going to be the, the same that we'll get into it's going to be similar and it's interesting that Hashimoto's is the most common in the U.S. but of course worldwide is iodine deficiency because in the U.S. they fortify our salt with mm-hmm. iodine. Um, uh, we figured it out. Yes. We, we cracked the code. We cracked the code. Stick it in the salt. Everybody loves salt. Mm-hmm. Got plenty of iodine. Also, milk and fish are a good source of dietary iodine. Um, so there's a whole host of symptoms, a whole host of symptoms that can present um, the, from hypothyroidism. A lot of them can mirror 
other syndromes, and so uh, a differential diagnosis is important. Um, uh, it's a common condition for um, females, and so sometimes, for instance, um, it can be conflated with um, like um, menopausal symptoms and that sort of thing. But I'll give you an example of a few. So um, cardiovascularly, it can cause bradycardia. In the CNS, um, people may describe cold intolerance, weakness, lethargy, fatigue, even neuropathy, polyneuropathy. Um, it can also cause constipation and weight gain, decreased libido, menstrual irregularities, um, and it can have psychiatric manifestations like depression and apathy, also dry skin. People complain of that a lot. Coarse hair or thinning hair sometimes. Um, in the elderly, it can cause anemia, deafness, incontinence, inability to walk, um, as well as hyponatremia. Um, just a few of the things to be aware of. Yeah, that all of those symptoms sound pretty horrible to have to deal with. So it's 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 kind of interesting. Like, I feel like just in a day to day life, we don't think about how much yeah. is regulated by other things. Function. I had seen mentioned um, like cognitive issues, mm -hmm. like trouble kind of getting your thoughts together and speaking, and a lot of things that can affect your quality just day to day, life, day, -to -day life. stuff. Yeah. yeah. And, and some of those symptoms, even when your lab values return to normal, some of those symptoms remain. I think that's where, just cliffhanger, that's where I think uh, some of the the differences between the guidelines, that at least, you know, since we, it's been a while since some new guidelines, guidelines have come out. Mm -hmm. I think that's where some of the discrepancy might be a factor. So we'll talk about that more. Surprisingly, there's a fair amount of ongoing studies going on with yeah. um, thyroid and thyroid medications. You would think there wouldn't be because they've been around for so long, but there's reasons for that. Yeah. So. Yeah. I was, I was surprised about that. It's like, yeah. we're really still studying some of these <laughs> things. A lot of it. But yeah. So, um, okay. So lab findings, um, typically speaking, um, if someone has hypothyroidism, they would, we would look at TSH first. Um, TSH, that like Cole mentioned, is going to be elevated when your T4 levels uh, start to start to fall because that's going to stimulate the, the secretion of those, those thyroid levels again, thyroid hormones again. And uh, when that it's not getting an adequate response, the level can continue to increase and, and rise. And um, so if the, the TSH is elevated, um, that kind of is our first sign. Sometimes, uh, especially while we're trying to kind of figure out where therapy needs to be, go, we would draw a, T, a free T4 level as well. It's not always the case. It's not always necessary, but sometimes we'll get that as well. And that kind of helps judge when, when it's back in that normal range again. Um, low T4 obviously would would kind of correlate alongside with the TSH. Um, it's the longer TSH is, is left elevated, T4 would we'd expect to continue to fall. Um, they also have various antibodies um, like antithyroid peroxidase, um, antithyroglobulin autoantibodies, things like that that you can uh, look for to assess for an autoimmune component. And uh, again, not always the something that's that's done like in a primary care setting, but you um, when you start looking at like endocrine. Um, um, endocrinology, Endocrine. yeah, you know, clinics and whatnot, they're a little bit more specific with some of those sometimes, especially if they can't get the symptoms under control like right. they would expect. Right, and there's a few different ways that they could classify the hypothyroidism based on the lab values. Um, so the most classic way they might describe is overt hypothyroidism. So like Mike said, that's with the elevated TSH, and despite that, the T4 still being below normal. Um, generally, they're going to be symptomatic with some of the symptoms we mentioned. It has an incidence of about 1% to 2%, and that would be a pretty clear indication for treatment. 
there's also something they call subclinical hypothyroidism. And that's when they find that the TSH is elevated, but the T4 is within normal limits. A lot of times they're asymptomatic because since they're um, T4 is within normal limits. They're not having symptoms. Um, this is common in the elderly. Up to 10% of elderly women have subclinical hypothyroidism. And the data is mixed as far as the benefit of treating in this case. Um, there's a severe form of hypothyroidism when the TSH is significantly elevated and the T4 levels are extremely low. And that's called myxedema coma, uh, which I remember us talking about quite a few years ago. Uh, but this presents with more severe symptoms like altered mental status or coma, um, hypothermia, uh, multi-organ dysfunction. It has a very high mortality rate, as high as 80%. Um, even with treatment, a mortality rate of 30 to 60%. So it's definitely higher risk in um, elderly folks. It's more common in women over the age of 60 years. Um, but yeah, that's myxedema coma, severe Form. There's also a secondary, Mike kind of touched on it, but this would be if your T4 levels are low, but then you check the TSH, um, which you probably would have already done, and it's not elevated, so nothing's prompting it to um, elevate and try to get more T4 pumping out, it's low as well. It could be a different cause of the um, hypothyroidism, which you do want to rule out before treating, um, like a, a issue with the hypothalamus pituitary axis, uh, like we were talking about before. Um, or something called sick euthyroid syndrome. Um, there's a few other things that can cause it, drugs, for instance. Um, but that would be a secondary hypothyroidism. And, you know, as far as screening patients, obviously if patients are symptomatic, things like that that would prompt, you know, the, to, to draw those, those thyroid labs. But um, there are various, like, screening recommendations for patients who are asymptomatic. Uh, and and I, it's interesting because, like, when, when you said that uh, the asymptomatic patients, you know, a lot, 10% of them or 10% uh, incidence in elderly women, it's like, well, a lot of the symptoms do reflect menopausal, mm -hmm. you know, symptoms or uh, cognitive, you know, yep. issues as people, you know, run into as they get older. And so it's kind of like, and it was just kind of interesting that like, well, they're asymptomatic. Right. Well, are they truly or, you know, did they, are they just misinterpreting the symptoms or yep. whatnot? Anyways, they, uh, you know, if a patient's having symptoms, that's one thing. But if, if they're not, they're asymptomatic, it's still a good idea to, to check uh, your TSH levels at some point or another, depending on which guideline you're looking at. I'll give you a few examples. Um, the, it varies widely. It, it really does. Um, the American Thyroid Association says that women and men above the age of 35 should be screened every five years. So Yeah, but you know. I'm coming up. American Thyroid Association if you're a hammer, then you're going to be looking for a nail. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So, well, 35 and up, everybody gets screwed. I hope mine's okay. Yeah. Um, but the uh, the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists, um, they say older patients, especially women, should be screened. Um, they don't really give it's a... pretty vague. Yeah, pretty vague. Um, I'd like a little bit more clarity, <laughs> maybe a, maybe somewhere in the middle of those two. And uh, so the American Academy of Family Physicians, they say six, patients 60 years of age and older... American College of Physicians says women 50 years of age and older with um, incidental findings suggestive of symptomatic thyroid disease. They don't really say for asymptomatic. Um, U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, insufficient evidence for or against screening. Which that's probably the, the best description of why they, there's so much you know variety in these recommendations yes. is the, the data is not clear. Yes. But I, I'll tell you what, that is so frustrating, though, when you're trying, especially if you're from like a teaching standpoint, mm -hmm. when you try to say, hey, here's the gut, like with gout. Yeah. Here's the American College of Physicians says these guidelines. So they have to, you know, they say don't even worry about looking at your gas levels. And then here's the rheumatoid, College of Rheumatology, the completely different outlook. And you're I mean, like, both are 
could be right. I remember being taught um, hypertension back in the day, and you know things were a little different. But them listing all the different guidelines and the kidney guidelines and the diabetes guidelines, and it's like, yeah, do so, what? So which one do I? Because before you know a lot about what's trustworthy and what's not, and you're just being taught that there's all these different guidelines out there. What do I follow? Yeah, you know, and you have to learn how to interpret those guys. What a mess! I know, but lots of different screening potential. So, you know, it would be one of those things that the keep an eye out for the symptomatic patients, obviously, yeah. and then from there, use your best clinical judgment based on. And I'm the, sure you could there, you know, you could use the guidelines and evaluate different factors like. Um, do your close family members have history of hypothyroidism? That Thing, would be one. Things of that nature. That things might of that put, nature. put you at higher risk despite your age or something like that. Because these seem to be only age and gender related, but there's other things that could play a role. Other autoimmune conditions can put you at higher risk for um, Hashimoto's and that sort of thing. So Other autoimmune conditions if in you're general. In, if r- you're rheumatoid arthritis. I mean, all kinds of stuff. Sure. If you're not in the U.S. or you have, you know... <laughs> You, you just um, abstain from salt in every way. I die salt in every way, shape, or form. Maybe you're at higher risk or something like that. Do, do you remember? Uh, like, like, I can't remember what the situation was. I was a. I honestly, I was like a technician still. Mm-hmm. Something happened where we were worried about like radiation or something like that. It was something. It was in the news for like a week or some stupid thing. Here? Yeah, but I can't remember. It was. I want to say it was like the West Coast though. Like they were worried about radiation from like coming from japan yeah, or something yeah, yeah, like yeah. that i know what you're i can't about. remember why it was probably some sort uh, it sounds very familiar in the last decade but it must have been some sort of um of um nuclear uh plant that, yeah. that malfunctioned well it, like it that. sounds like a situation that would make sense why people who live in the southeast are freaking out about something that's in, clearly not going to affect them and <laughs> they're in the pharmacy t- asking me questions about mm-hmm. it it's like well i think you're probably fine but i remember someone saying like asking like are we going to start shipping iodine tablets out there and that's I'm not in charge of that, but probably, probably not. <laughs> you're, you're this like, I, I was like 19. You're like a 19 year old pharmacy technician. Yeah. I'm like, what? What are you talking like, about? Do you think we're going to start shipping? I'm like, who's we? I'm like, I'm not part of the task force. What are you talking about? I'm thinking, I don't know. I figured, imagine California has their own people for that. <laughs> they don't need my help. <laughs> you, should, you should be like, oh yeah, I'm going to get right on that. Yeah. I'm actually shipping out later to, to go handle the iodine tablet situation. But uh, yeah, I don't know why it just popped into my head, but that's uh, that was. I remember like I leave him like, what the heck was he talking about? Speaking of um, things that put you at a higher risk, pregnancy is higher risk for mm. um, for hypothyroidism, and they don't um, they don't make a habit or at least a recommendation of screening everybody um, who is pregnant. But I remember that when Anna was pregnant, her OB did recommend that she uh, prophylactically take um, supplemental iodine. Hmm. I don't think we did, but she did yeah. just just as like a just in case thing. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't get that recommendation. Yeah, I know. I never heard it before, hmm. and we didn't do it. But <laughs> now that I'm studying, it's like, oh, maybe we should have. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess it all worked out. Yeah, it worked out. So um, we talked about you know if a patient is going to get screening, typically they'll do TSH levels, uh, especially you know if you are doing like asymptomatic patients, TSH is probably going to be sufficient um the the thing that's a little bit difficult with tsh versus like let's say blood pressure is if you give someone a blood pressure medication you can kind of see the results of it fairly quickly uh, versus tsh levels you know if we're kind of tracking those to see when the patient is you thyroid again uh, it, the half-life on tsh is pretty long it's about a week or so so you want to wait about four to six weeks uh, in order for that tsh to reach their its new steady state in order to draw the level again to see if you need to make an adjustment to the dose or not. Once that is, you know, 
once that's been done, you're you're in the normal thyroid levels, your TSH is normalized, then uh, you can move to an, an annual check just to make sure that the patient's maintaining that unless there's symptoms or something like that would indicate testing earlier. But um, it's not necessary to continue doing it like every four to six months or something. Yeah. Um, T4, you can also get in addition to, to TSH, obviously some patients or some physicians will even get uh, T3 levels as well. But uh, T, free T4 um, is also going to be an important one to monitor during pregnancy because your thyroid dose, uh, your treatment dose will probably increase when you, uh, if you become pregnant while already taking thyroid medication. Right. But uh, yeah, so TSH is the big one, then free T4 and then some other extras if you want to get fancy. So we're going to get into treatment next. And as far as um, what we're trying to do when we're treating hypothyroidism is primarily to reduce the patient's symptoms. Likely they're probably complaining about something. That's why they're they're seeing you. And then you want to give them something that is going to uh, reduce the amount of symptoms. We do want to restore the physiologic functions, uh, metabolism, growth that affects protein synthesis and that sort of thing. And then, of course, avoid serious complications like myxedema coma, psychosis, um, arrhythmias that are not um, uncommon, um, sleep apnea, and then, you know, some of the depression um, side effects and things of that nature. So that's that's what we're trying to do. The uh, sleep apnea, I wonder, I wonder if it's a, you know how sleep apnea, like if it's left untreated or uncontrolled or whatever, that it can complicate cardiovascular issues and things like that. I wonder if, if, if I would imagine that it also could affect like thyroid levels and stuff like that. If you're having that as well, I mean, if, if it might be a complication of hypothyroidism, but I wonder if it can do the reverse too. Maybe it just popped in my head. I don't know why, but it'd be might. a, it'd be a super quick uh, Google search. But I, just, I just wanted you guys to feel like you're on the adventure with me <laughs> of learning it. So the I'm just, that just, th- just thinking out loud. <laughs> Anyways, um, the uh, you, know, you want to jump right into treatment, levothyroxine? Yeah. yeah, I'll start with the first line. Levothyroxine is one that I'm sure we're all very familiar with. It is the gold standard for treating patients with hypothyroidism. It used to have various brand names, and uh, I mean, I guess they're still available, but it's not as big of a deal as it once was. Uh, it's under brand names such as Synthroid, Levoxyl, uh, Unithyroid, but they're all going to be T4, synthetic levothyroxine. There's various doses available uh, as far as the formulations that it's made in. It's it's like, what, every 12 micrograms, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's quite a, f- a bit of uh, various doses available that you can choose from. And the reason for that is because you're making very, very small dose adjustments, especially in our older patients. And those are, are necessary sometimes. Um, the... Various like kind of starting doses to think about. One first thing you look at is a patient's age. If the patient is being diagnosed with hypothyroidism and they're 60 years of age or younger, um, they have no comorbid heart disease, uh, we're typically going to use a weight-based dose. So you use the ideal body weight, and it's 100 or excuse me, 1.6 micrograms per kilogram of ideal body weight per day. That's the initial dose. 60 years of age and younger without heart disease. Patients that have heart disease, they are started off at a much smaller dose, uh, usually 12.5 up to 50 micrograms per day is a, a good kind of starting point, and, um, and then it you know, escalates from there. Uh, because the coronary heart disease potentially could complicate things and the levothyroxine can cause <coughs> excuse me, some uh, issues, 
Um, if, the, if the doses started too high, they, they give a more reasonable starting dose and um, obviously expect a, a titration up it from there. But adults who are 60 years of or above the age of 60, even if they do not have heart disease, we still want to start them at a lower dose because they're going to be more susceptible to changes in their thyroid levels and, uh, and how those the symptoms manifest. So 25 to 50 micrograms per day is a good initial starting dose for those patients. Um, and again, that's 60 years of age uh, or above the age of 60 without heart disease, 25 to 50. And then with, with heart disease, coronary heart disease, it doesn't matter about age, 12.5 up to 50 is the range. And then we're adjusting the dose. We're making small tweaks to the dose, uh, 12.5 to 25 micrograms per day every you know, four to six weeks based on the serum TSH levels that we're drawing and free T4 levels if we're looking at that as well. Once that TSH has been normalized and stays normalized for at least six weeks or more, that's where we found our dose, Ho- hopefully. Hopefully. Um, and then, of course, we have to monitor going forward. And part of what can throw off whether that's going to work well or not is how it's taken and the absorption, uh, much of which I'm sure we're pretty familiar with. But generally, it's dosed in the morning on an empty stomach 30 to 60 minutes before breakfast um, or any sort of food um, or at bedtime four hours after the last meal. Um, I can't say that I ever eat and then wait four hours before going to bed. You know what I mean? Yeah. I always have some sort of snack like late in the evening. Sometimes Uh, multiple snacks. Sometimes many snacks throughout the evening. Uh, Regardless, uh, it is kind of annoying dosing. And not only that, but it has to be done before um, or generally is done before people take their other medications and things like that um, if it's done in the morning. So Mm -hmm. it needs to be specifically, though, it needs to be dosed separately from um, calcium or iron supplements and and acids. So um, those would be the dye and trivalent cations, I believe. Um, but generally, we're going to avoid any other medications for 30 to 60 minutes if you take it first thing in the morning. Um, and like Mike mentioned, the doses might be higher in pregnancy, and they have kind of a specific guideline for that to follow. Uh, but some of the side effects that uh, is the reason we start low were in patients with a cardiovascular disease or if they're elderly are tachycardia, palpitations, um, and then also sweating, weight loss, arrhythmias, um, irritability, things of that nature. Yeah, and that's where I think the the concern with the cardiovascular underlying, like underlying cardiovascular disease risk comes from. We don't want to worsen any of those types of issues with causing tachycardia or angina or anything like that. Yeah. So the... Uh, do you find that when you're talking to patients, how, how many of them take it properly? I mean, if it's um, like an older lady who's been taking it for a long time, I mean, generally they know that they, it's like the, they set a separate alarm, mm-hmm. the ones that I run into. They would set a separate alarm to wake up, take it, go back to sleep, and then, you know, get up and go about their normal business. But you know, if it were me, I'm trying to imagine me doing that consistently every day. Even if I know what to do, still I imagine that I would... I would falter. Yeah. Because, you know, and the reason, and this is, again, just kind of me thinking out loud, but, you know, like we always say, like, we'll check the TSH levels if they're normal. And even if the patient is not taking the dose correctly, obviously it's not causing an issue. But I'm wondering if taking it properly away from first thing, like first thing in the morning or, you know, on a fasting after dinner, you know, or something like that. I wonder if they are taking it properly like that, if, if, if they would potentially have less side effects, things like that, if they are at all. Yeah. I don't know. 
but um, have more consistent release, which it does have a generally long and slow release. Yeah, but, yeah. I don't know. Just thinking out loud, but uh, it's that's the other thing is I feel like we get taught, hey, make sure patients are taking it this way, and then you find out that their levels have been normal for two years, but they're taking it with breakfast. Mm-hmm. It's like if you start messing with the dose, then or t- telling them to take it properly, then their levels might may uh, change a little bit. I remember I was on rotation as a fourth year with Dr. Bragg, and there was this doctor that was kind of getting a curbside consult from him. But this is actually so interesting considering the article that we're going to talk about. Um, and um, this uh, lady's um, TSH levels, he just could not get into range. There was just fluctuating um, a lot. And he said that, you know, she's taking leave with and she was dosing it perfectly, exactly how she should do. They've tweaked the dose and everything, and it just could not get it to stay in range. And the only thing unusual about the diet was like she ate a lot of green leafy vegetables. So he's just convinced it has to do with these green leafy vegetables. Um, and I, I'm pretty sure this was the situation. And we were <laughs> we were like having to dig and try to find some data about interactions with green leafy vegetables and levothyroxin, kind of like with warfarin or mm. whatever. And we really couldn't find anything. <laughs> um, and so that was pretty much what Dr. Bragg kind of telling him was like, I don't know if it's the green leafy vegetables, um, but this doctor was just convinced that's that that's what it is. But we couldn't find anything to support it. Um, but you know, I don't know. It, m- it might have been that he needed to consider a combination, or you know, give desiccated thyroid a try or something like that. Is uh, so you never figured it out? No, I mean, you know, I would imagine that there are um, dye and trivalent cation type. Um, minerals in green leafy vegetables, but she wasn't taking them with the levothyroxine. It's just that he noted that her diet was high in green leafy vegetables. So he was just convinced that this was the hmm. the issue. But. I'm not going to lie. I was really, when I was listening, I was like, wow, we're about to get some cutting edge stuff no. about diet. And then you're like, yeah, so we just never figured it no, out. No, we learned nothing. <laughs> I was like, okay, man, what a, that's a crazy twist. Well, it end. made me, th- as I was thinking about it, it made me think what we're going to talk about in a little bit about some of the alternatives because she was just on levothyroxine straight. Because I would be, I would think more like it, I, it's probably not so much like if it's green leafy vegetables, wouldn't they just be higher? Could they be higher in fiber? Is that maybe why she's got more fiber in her diet? Because I feel like that would be more maybe. But the idea is that it absorbs uh, before she's really eating anything if she's dosing it correctly. You know, so why? Yeah, why would I don't well, know. you know? I don't know. I don't know. We, I just don't. I don't know what green leafy vegetables. I was just trying to think why green leafy vegetables in particular. That's just she just ate a lot of them apparently. Yeah, and so he he figured it had to be related to that. Had to be. Yeah, maybe. But not that we could find. Either that or he was very confused about levothyroxine and uh, warfarin. I mean, we you know we told him like you know it's not warfarin. Right? I remember looking and being like, Doctor Bragg, I see a whole bunch of stuff about warfarin, but I got <laughs> nothing on levothyroxine. What what if he was like really it interacts with warfarin? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so definitely um, interactions with the the trivalent divalent cations, like Cole said, is the really the big one that we think about in. Uh, but apparently, potentially some some green leafy vegetables. <laughs> this is one situation. But uh, there are some other um, drugs that can definitely uh, are known to decrease the, the absorption, you know, specifically of levothyroxine. Besides those uh, multivalent cations, things like cholestyramine, um, cyclophate, and then fiber supplements, like I was just talking about, can can do that as well. And then some things that increase the metabolism of levothyroxine. Uh, this, so if they're started, uh, they're going to need some dose adjustment potentially while they're on these medications. Um, rifampin and then carbamazepine, phenobarb, phenytoin can all cause uh, increased levothyroxine uh, excretion and metabolism. Yes. Um, 
you know, maybe maybe here's some other considerations. So there are some things to wonder about, say, if things aren't going exactly how you want them to go. You've um, ruled out that it's one of those drugs or one of those things that's causing fluctuations in um, the T4, and despite their levothyroxine dose, you feel like you're having to go to a higher dose than you should. Um, you could evaluate for some GI disorders like um, H. pylori infection or celiac disease, so related to the gut and absorption and that sort of thing. Um, you could reassess serum TSH after initiation or discontinuation of um, certain estrogens and androgens. Um, it's going to be big for our menopausal patients. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then if patients have a significant change in their body weight, or like we mentioned a couple of times, if they become pregnant, um, you may need to adjust the dose there as well yeah the i feel like that's one of those things that gets overlooked sometimes is the like potential issues with the gut absorption in the first place like mm-hmm. h pylori um and that yeah i i've i feel like i would i overlook that in my own head when i'm thinking through mm-hmm. like the levels and things like that yep but um that's a good one to, to keep in mind and then there are some other options as well that i'm sure you're familiar with, but we're going to kind of go through these. And if you've listened to our old episode of hypothyroidism, we probably heard us maybe dog on these a little bit and, you know, for some good reasons, but we're going to, we're going to basically uh, maybe shed a little bit of a changed opinion on our parts with these a little bit. But before we or do at that, least one man's opinion on it. Yeah. But one I doctor's kind of, yeah. Yeah. But I kind of agree. <laughs> yeah, he's compelling. He wrote yeah, a book. He did write a book. I haven't written a book. Have he, you? No, no. Okay. He not only wrote a book, but he wrote like, 240 published articles or something like that's that. a lot about the thyroid and it's on thyroid it's not just yeah. like you wrote a book on history yeah it's a book <laughs> on thyroid so uh before we jump into that though um what's the uh, password for today's super awesome episode great idea so it's going to be tsh23 yes t is in tom h is in sam <laughs> dang it T is in Tom, S is in Sam, H is in Harry. Did you say H is in Harry? No, I think I said, I said H is in Sam. Nice. H is in Sam. <laughs> T-S-H. H is in X-ray. 23. I also don't use the right uh, phonetic yeah. words like you're supposed to. Unbelievable. You need to get on that, dude. <laughs> I, I I will think of it. I can't remember now, but there are some really hilarious <laughs> words that some of my colleagues have used. That I would hear them on the phone and they would say, <laughs> I can't remember. But <laughs> it is very funny. We'll come back to it as I recall. Okay, <laughs> right on. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna hold our breath for that. <laughs> yeah. So some other options besides levothyroxine, T four. Oh, you know what? We also didn't mention the thing about generics. And uh, oh yeah. So there, there for a long time, you know, we would have these issues with very like variable bioavailabilities between you know manufacturers and if somebody was started on synthroid they would continue like or typically continued on brand name synthroid kind of going forward and you know if they were on unithroid or something they would be continued on that one and nowadays the the generics that are most commonly like carried in pharmacies um are going to be the uh, the brands that are considered to be um AB rated under the FDA's orange book, which basically shows if something is is equivalent um, to the the brand name, if the generic is equivalent to the brand name. And so previously, some of the generics were not equivalent; they'd be equivalent to one of the brand names, but not multiple brand names. Yeah. So it was like what um, Myelin. Myelin is very common. Myelin's the big one. I think it uh, is AB rated on all all of them, and uh, there's one other one as well. Abbott maybe. Um, Abbott Abbott makes Synthroid, right? 
Um, I, I, could be I wrong. had to look, I could but be wrong. there's, I think there's at least two of them that are AB rated now, but I feel like most pharmacies, um, carry the AB rated one, but yes. that's not, uh, not something you hear about as often as you once did, but it is still one of those situations where patients will, if they've been on one for a while. They, a lot of times will just continue to be on one just cause it's been working for them. Yeah. And it, it it's one of the few drugs where you should at least think about it. If yeah. something went wonky after you switched. Um, yeah, it could be it's that. Definitely consideration. Epilepsy is another one. Um, even MS appears to be one, but uh, really, yeah, yeah. But if levothyroxine is not the only option, we have our synthetic T3, our leothyronine or Cytomel is the brand name. Um, it's something that is not not often recommended as far as being added to the patient's treatment. Um, and it's it's. There's various reasons for that, but um, it's not our first line option. Um, it's it's not even sometimes uh, anybody's second option, but uh, we'll we'll hopefully give you a couple of reasons where at least to think about potentially using that. Um, so we'll, we'll we'll come back to uh, old cytomel here in a little bit, but. Typically speaking, uh, um, levothyroxine monotherapy is what's kind of recommended. And then we have an older product. We have our desiccated thyroid, so like Armour Thyroid, Nature Thyroid, where you have this T3, T4, like fixed combo um, that is, you know, derived from, from pig thyroid glands. It's historically been an issue where the it's been harder to predict the, the potency, harder to predict the stability in the, even the ratio that they are available in. And that's one of those situations where um, it's become, I don't know, fixed is the right word, but they've gotten, they've gotten better at uh, predicting the stability of those. And, and it's not, so I, in fact, the gentleman that we were talking about that wrote that book and the article, he's kind of like, that doesn't even really consider that a, a concern anymore. Um, I haven't done enough personal research on that to know whether, you know, to, to refute that, but, um, yeah, he pretty much <clears throat> said that it shouldn't be a conversation yeah. anymore, which yeah. historically the issue was if you're, you know, taking, having a desiccated thyroid from a pig, um, the ratio, your thyroid levels are significantly affected by various things like your diet or how much iodine you're eating. So if you're getting pigs from this or that part of the country, then, um, they're, they could have different ratios or different potencies, and they did frequently in the past, but apparently they have found a way to fix it. Yeah. He doesn't quite explain how they did it. He doesn't, which is why I said I'm not going to... He, he, he gives a pretty detailed explanation as to why there was an issue before, but he doesn't really give yeah. one as to why there's not an issue now. Which, I, yeah, and, and like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm sure he's written so much and done so much in this career with thyroid. I'm sure there isn't one. I just... I just don't know what the reason is, so I'm not going to be able to elaborate because we didn't look into that piece of it very much. But, um, you know, historically speaking, uh, it's not been a recommended product um, in, you know, more recent years because of various issues. And like Cole said, the fixed ratio is not necessarily equivalent to the physiologic ratio or consistent with the physiologic ratio that we would see in a human. So it's, it's one of those things that, you know, that can potentially cause more risk of side effects or, you know, whatever. Um, so the American Thyroid Association, um, the American Association of Clinical Endocrinology, they recommend, uh, they don't recommend using the general use of, you know, this product. Um, the, there was a meta-analysis from 2006 that was looking at 11 different clinical trials and didn't show a difference between T4, T3 combo versus T4 only and did report more um, 
uh, I'm sorry, they didn't ha- they didn't report uh, additional adverse effects, but there wasn't a benefit. So why use additional therapy is the kind of the conclusion. Um, then there was a 2021 randomized uh, blinded crossover study that um, showed patients who were the most symptomatic while on therapy with levothyroxine were the ones who benefited from therapy with lyotheronine plus levothyroxine or the desiccated thyroid extract. Um, And so that's maybe uh, something to consider when when looking at combo therapy, and that's what we'll kind of get into. Yeah. Um, So the American Thyroid Association guidelines, I think, are from 2014. There's a 2012 European Thyroid Journal guideline that the fellow actually, um, who wrote the book, actually references um, when talking about the combination of T3 and T4. And they kind of talk about, I believe this is what they're saying, they kind of talk about some um, instances to consider it, which is primarily if you are um, a consistently treated um, patient with free T4 or with levothyroxine, but you still have persistent complaints. Your your TSH and your free T4 are in range, but you still have persistent complaints. It could be considered. Um, Data does suggest that about 5 to 10% of patients treated with um, T4 um, will, with normal serum, TSH have persistent symptoms, um, could be related to the disease, could be related to the T4 therapy. Um, there's a little bit of data that suggests that the psychological well-being and preference for the combination um, may be influenced, interestingly, by polymorphisms in the thyroid hormone pathway genes, specifically um, a thyroid hormone transporter, thyroid hormone transporters, and um, deodinases. It also suggests that the combination might be considered um, if the patient is compliant, treated with T4, but they still have these persistent symptoms, um, despite the TSH values being in reference range. Um, provided they have previously been given support to deal with the chronic nature of their disease and associated other autoimmune diseases have been ruled out. Um, all that to say, that's that's what they say, that's when they say it should be considered. The other guy says it should be considered much more frequently. Yeah, well, and, and, and I guess we should, uh, we'll, we'll give the gentleman's name. I don't know why we're, keeping, we're not doing <laughs> it's that. It's only because I can remember it. Yeah, um, so it's Dr. Antonio um, Bianco, and uh, he's an MD, PhD, um, and of uh, Chicago, I believe, um, and very, very uh, involved, the University of Chicago, yeah. And um, and so he's he's a professor of medicine there and, and very much uh, involved with, thyroid uh, function and research and has been very well published in the matter. Um, so that's, I'll link the, there's a Medscape article called Why the Hesitancy in Recommending Combination T3, T4 Therapy. And uh, it's got a really good podcast uh, episode that is um, accompanied by the article. The article is like a transcript of the podcast, but I'll link that in the show notes because it's pretty, it's, it should be uh, free to listen to and it's, it's pretty good. I, I enjoyed it. So Dr. Bianco, very good job. Yeah. All right. Well, um, let's see. You, and you already went through the list of. Uh, I was pulling that up because I want to make sure we give him credit. <laughs> credit. Yeah. Um, did, did you already talk about the the European? Yes. Non-specific. Okay, I thought so. Talk about that in the next one. So the. Um, so patients, you know, if you do find that they're a candidate for, based on like what Cole was talking about, their their symptoms are pers- remaining, you know, in 
despite the fact that, you know, on paper their, their hormone levels have kind of normalized or, um, you know, their, their, their T4 dose has been kind of optimized. Then if we do decide to go the T3 combo route, um, they, the guidelines give a little bit of a, uh, they, they give a few different suggestions, a few different like options as far as calculating the dose. Cause we don't just add on the levothyroxine. Um, we typically will reduce the dose of the levothyroxine and add the T3 in its place. So the one of the, like I said, there's three different, uh, methods. They, they come, they publish as far as, you know, calculating this dose. The first one that I'm going to go through method A, um, I'll just go through this one with you guys so you can kind of see, but, uh, what they say is basically if you start off with, um, a patient who's on T4 monotherapy and they're on a hundred micrograms, the first step is, um, to calculate the, uh, what they call Y your T3 dose. And, um, what they do is they take the, they take the patient's monotherapy, total daily dose of levothyroxine, divide it by 17. Um, and that in this case would be, if it's a hundred, that would be a 5.88, um, dose of the T3. And then they take, uh, they want you to calculate the dose of T4, they, what they refer to as Z. And, uh, they say that they take the X, which is the original dose of the thyroid hypothyroidism minus three times Y, which you've already calculated in this case, 5.88. And that gives you your um, T3 dose that you can round off to, you know, whatever dose is available. And then what's left over, you take that, that T4 dose that you calculated, which should be less, hopefully, than your previous dose. And uh, that was, you know, a baseline. And then you round that off to whatever the nearest um, you know, dose is available. And um, it ends up being around a 14, point, um, 14 to 1 T4 to T3 ratio. They, they give a few other examples as well. And um, let me pull this up on my screen. For those of you who that made absolutely no sense to. Um, Sounded like, felt like algebra. Yeah, well, I'd say that's pretty much the perfect description <laughs> for it. So for those of you who are looking at my screen, I took a screenshot of method A. So you can kind of work through that. So hit pause on YouTube now. And don't forget to subscribe and like now. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the... Uh, that that's kind of the the method that they give for method a and then they have b and c as well and so um that gives you some insight as far as how to how to manage that but um if you were going to um you calculate your t3 dose typically divide the dose and they they even recommend to do um a little bit higher dose in the uh before sleeping and a little bit lower dose um before breakfast so because that kind of mimics your your natural circadian rhythm yeah. So definitely it's not as simple as like, okay, just give them, right. add on a little bit of whatever. Don't just add on T3. They right. want you to kind of subtract an equivalent amount almost to create right. that 14 to one ratio. So it's, it's, it's a little bit of a uh, little bit of math and, and a little bit of uh, finagling with their doses to, to get it right. And if you're doing the combo, there is going to be a little bit more monitoring to be done. So you do want to monitor thyroid function tests, um, in a blood sample that's withdrawn the morning, the medication withdrawn before um, morning medications have been taken, so in the morning, but before they take it. You're aiming at a normal serum TSH, free T4, free T3, and uh, free T4, 2T3 ratio. 
Uh, they say if a dose adjustment needs to be done and you're taking the combination, it's suggested that only one of the components is changed at a time, but uh, preferably the T3 dose being changed. They don't recommend the use of the combination in pregnant women or in patients with cardiac arrhythmias. Um, and then they say, if you're doing this, take it for three months. If there has not been any improvement, um, discontinue, which to me is a short period of time, but that's what they say. Yeah, and, and again, I, I think for me personally, I feel like this is the, the patient group that I think about this the most and is the ones who their thyroid levels look normal, but they're having like depressive symptoms. They're feeling like they're, you know, empathy or, you know, that type of, those type of symptoms are, are still remaining. Yeah, maybe there's um, probably cognitive symptoms and yeah, trouble thinking. Or yeah, remembering, absolutely. You know. I think that's at least the patients that I've talked to that I, you know, have thought it may be a good candidate for that. That's usually what it comes down to. And you know, it actually kind of makes sense even from a depression standpoint, because for those of you, I mean, we just did a depression episode not too long ago, but um, so I'm sure we mentioned that STAR-D trial, mm-hmm. but one of the, the ad, like, ad, um, or one of the different uh, augmentation options for, like, step three was either lithium added to their SSRI, SNRI, whatever they were on previously, or cytomel t3 as an adjunct um, option, and so that's, it's it's got data in that patient population anyway so it does kind of make sense yeah so there's there's a few things that uh you know so a few reasons that have been brought up as far as the the reasons against it besides just the the lack of data that we've seen from some of the big studies the uh um some things to keep in mind is that when you do take cytomel you get this very sharp rise in T3 concentration. So it peaks um, two to three hours after ingestion um, and then rapidly decreases uh, from that. So it's got a different kinetic profile and it would actually be more appropriate to have like a sustained release um, liothyronine um, available formulation. That's the word I'm looking for. I don't know. I wish it went with available. <laughs> um, but uh, the, 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 the sustained release formulation would, would be a little bit more appropriate. And um, there was a, uh, a paper that was from, you know, it's phase one tr- study, but it was an extended absorption of liothyronine from a polyzinc um, liothyronine results from a phase one double-blind randomized and controlled study in humans. Um, it was in, published in thyroid February 2022. So um, I think, and I think there's other ones in Europe that are being looked at as well. And Dr. Bianco, it does actually address that a bit. The the concern for the peak T3, which doesn't mirror uh, physiologic response. And I, he, he pretty much says that um, they're aware that that happens. And the concern is long-term, is that going to cause a problem? And he says there's multiple safety studies that say that it's okay. That, yeah. would, that would be what he says. Yeah. He also, he, though he also mentions that um, part of the reason that, uh, levothyroxine is so common as a, instead of people doing the combination um, is because a lot of it was not evaluated by the FDA in a similar way to what a new medication might be because a lot of it was grandfathered in from you know, like desiccated thyroid from before the FDA was a thing. Even levothyroxine was apparently discovered a long time ago. And then when the synthetic form came around, they didn't compare it in a way that, um, that was um, similar to some of the other new medications. So he says that's why they're looking at a lot of it now. Um, but interesting t- uh, to think that they weren't put head to head, like desiccated thyroid and levothyroxine was not put head to head, even though even though there has been some combination T three T four stuff compared to T four on its own looked at. 
and shown to be no benefit of the combination, but also without too many additional adverse effects. Yeah, and well, and I think too, you, you know, it, he's also not, you know, someone that's advocating just more and more and more. He's also, he also brought up in his uh, in that podcast episode, he brought up that he, within his clinic, some of the patients he'll take off of their. Um, they'll leave with that rocks and completely see how their TSH responds. If it starts to go back up, then okay, you know, they can get their medication situated. But he, he, he said some patients that will stop it, their TSH level doesn't move. And then he says, you know, you don't have hyperthyroidism. Per- perfect. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's definitely one that feels like it's overtreated. I think his main deal is if they're, it's steady on levothyroxine, all the levels look good, but they're still having symptoms. Right, he that's says, when he's, he says, "Don't don't push. be afraid of." He says, "Don't push the levothyroxine dose. Don't be yes, don't be afraid of the combination." Yeah, it's which kinda, I think is a good way of putting it because yeah. I just didn't want to. I didn't want to make it sound like he was just all about doing everybody on the combination. More, more, more. Yeah, right. he he wasn't saying that by any means, but yeah. he's also not somebody who's going to shy. And I, I really like that he mentioned that throughout a lot of his career, he was telling people. No, I'm not giving you this kid thyroid. I'm giving you this. Right. And, and he said he's kind of backtracked on that to say that, well, you know, if the patient is feeling well on this, felt wellness in the past, who am I to tell them they can't have that? So I don't know. I mean, for someone like him in his position has done that much stuff, you know, in his career, and then to have a flip and realize that uh, maybe I was wrong about that. I don't know. I got respect for that. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. I yeah. feel like a lot of people don't do that. No. But uh, like Cole mentioned, um, managing hypothyroidism um, in pregnancy can also be another complicated aspect of this. Um, hypothyroidism can increase the risk of stillbirth. Um, it, it's, there's some evidence that it can lower the 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 child's um, IQ score later in life. It can also increase the risk of spontaneous um, abortions, preeclampsia, things like that. And um, ideally, you know, if the patient is found to have hypothyroidism during pregnancy or, or their hypothyroidism becomes uncontrolled during pregnancy, we want to correct that within the first two months of that pregnancy, you know, as fast as we can. Um, levothyroxine monotherapy in those patients, um, just like we would normally, We're not giving T3 usually in those patients. And, uh, you know, we have to adjust the dose until the TSH reaches the lower half um, of the trimester specific reference range. So um, keep in mind the patients will typically need a, if they're on T4 and you leave with their oxygen prior um, to pregnancy, they're probably going to need a, a pretty big dose increase, potentially up to 45% of their pre pregnancy dose. So big, yeah. big jump. Okay. So we'll finish off the last few minutes talking about the myxedema coma or the myxedema crisis if they're not in a coma. Uh, which I mentioned before is a severe form of um, having low um, free T4 as well as low TSH, and it's severe, it's life-threatening, decompensated hypothyroidism. Some things can precipitate it, like trauma, infections, heart failure, um, other medications like sedatives, narcotics, anesthesia, and then Mike mentioned lithium and amiodarone. Um, Having a coma is not required to have it be a myxedema crisis um but uh it it, it is an uncommon for them to actually have, have a myxedema, full coma, have a full yeah. coma so generally it's going to be an altered mental state that's very common uh, they can also have diastolic hypertension or hypothermia as well as hypoventilation 
you know, when a patient comes in and they're being treated for you know, mixed hemocrisis or, or coma, we're, we're no longer worried about the, the oral uh, levothyroxine being, de- being given. At this point, we're given IV levothyroxine as a big loading dose. Um, and then from there, they would give daily maintenance doses and then discharge the patient, obviously, on oral T4 to levothyroxine. Um, but IV levothyroxine until they can get the patient stabilized. And uh, sometimes patients will also get T3 as well um, during this during this time period or during this situation. Um, that's not uncommon as well to, to add on T3, um, especially if they're um, in a full mixed name coma. Um, dextrose uh, is also given if the patients are found to be hypoglycemic. Um, free water restriction if they are found to be hyponatremic at all. Uh, if they are having hypotension, uh, vasopressors may end up um, needing to be used. And uh, if they are worried about any kind of like an infectious cause or anything like that, you know, considering empiric antibiotics. And the other thing to consider is, is an adrenal suppression. So until that's ruled out, um, as far as, a, you know, any, any kind of coexisting adrenal suppression, we would typically give hydrocortisone 100 milligrams every eight hours as well until we know for sure it's not that. Yeah. Um, so one issue is that you can have GI alterations uh, in this instance. So you can have slowing or cessation of the um, uh, gastrointestinal tract. Uh, you can have peristalsis occur, preventing absorption of the orally administered medications. So in this instance, all the meds need to be given parenterally. That's why we're giving IV levothyroxine, um, as well as we want it to uptake quickly and have good bioavailability fast. Um, uh, consciousness, lower TSH concentrations, and improvement in vital signs are generally expected in about 24 hours. Um, and levothyroxine will continue to be given IV until they stabilize and oral therapy can be initiated. Yeah. So there you go. There you go. Anything else we got to cover? No. I think we're, uh, it's, it's uh, yeah. Three drugs makes it pretty easy. It sure but does. But still I feel somehow like, complicated. But still somehow complicated. Um, I should just clip that thing of me going through that math problem without people who are just listening and just, <laughs> just making a meme. Um, but uh, thank you guys so much for taking the time to listen. If you are a free CE member, make sure you go and get your one hour of continuing education credit. Um, so freece.com, check out their, their content. If you're not a member, I definitely encourage you to uh, consider it. They have all kinds of live events. They have these panel discussions that they'll do live. They have monographs that you can do on your time. They have all kinds of different, you know, uh, lecture style, um, continuing ed options. And then our podcast obviously are on there as well. So check out that. I'm very uh, thankful that they've partnered with us for the last few years and, um, you know, I hope you guys are enjoying that aspect of the podcast. For those of you who want more traditional style lectures and get tired of colonized tangents and things, um, check out the Patreon, um, patreon.com slash core consult RX. And I have various pharmacotherapy lectures on there, uh, slide sets you can download, practice questions, things like that. And uh, definitely uh, encourage you to check that out. And and if you have any questions for Cole or myself, our emails will be in the show notes. You can reach us at the phone number that is in the show notes as well. If you want to shoot us a text, Um, you can reach us on the social media platforms, whatever is your preferred method of communication. (laughs) And uh, appreciate all of you guys so much. Appreciate you sticking with us all this time and, and continuing to support the podcast. And we'll see you guys in the next one. Have a good night.